Welcome to Molotov Now, a podcast about taking action. In Molotov Now, we analyze and discuss news articles and stories of resistance from around the globe and connect them to our struggles here at home in Aberdeen, Washington. In the spirit of building solidarity between the rural and the urban, we hope to inspire direct action in the face of oppression and to light a fire to find each other in the darkness. This is Sprout. And this is Sharon. And we are hosts of Molotov Now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. If you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AL1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. Today is our 12th, 12th, 13th episode, marking one year of Molotov Now. And it's all about police and prison abolition. We have an interview with Robin from Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons and their ongoing campaign against the construction of a federal prison in rural eastern Kentucky. We think this is an important campaign to support. As our sights are all set on Atlanta right now, and for good reason, let us not forget these similar struggles happening in smaller, more rural areas. We will get into some news and upcoming events in the Pacific Northwest. We have some updates from our newsletter, The Communique, as well as a few pressing mutual aid requests. That's up next, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. With protests continuing in cities all over the world, the Channel Zero Network has some reminders on how to support those who have been arrested, and those who may be arrested in the coming days and weeks. Arrests are one tool cops use to repress mass movements. Arrests keep protesters off the streets during demonstrations. They scare people with the threat of court cases and potential prison sentences. Alone, we feel defenseless against the police and the courts. By providing jail and court support, we can push back against this repression, from the moment our comrades are taken in to the end of their court case. Before heading out into the streets, make sure you and everyone you're with has a contact number written on their body. You'll need to get in touch with someone if you're arrested, and you most likely won't have your personal belongings with you. This number can be the National Lawyers Guild, a group you're currently involved with, or just a friend who's not at the protest. If you see someone getting arrested, call your legal support number with the arrestee's legal name and birthday. If you are in a large city, you may have to determine where they will be taken. Try to find the arresting officer's precinct or unit. This may determine where your comrade ends up. In smaller cities, everyone may go to the same place. If you expect more arrests, try to stay and observe. If not, you should head to the precinct and wait for the arrestee. Once at the precinct, use the legal name and birthday of the arrestee to ask the cops for the arrest number, charges, and where the arrestee will be taken or held. Keep anyone supporting you in a loop. Be prepared to wait many hours. Keep in touch with others and take turns waiting outside the precinct. In some cases, it may take the whole night, especially if there's been a mass arrest. From here, each city and state has different processes and different jargon. Connect with local organizers and read about local laws to learn what the process will be in your area. Here are some things you might encounter. Sometimes arrestees are released quickly with a notice that they'll need to show up in court at a later date. If this happens, take the contact info of the arrestee. You'll want to be ready to offer them court support in the future. 
Sometimes, arrestees are charged before release. This is a longer process, usually called arraignment, which is a procedural court hearing to file charges and set bail. The court will assign a public defender for arraignments. Try to have a couple of friends attend the arraignment for support. Due to COVID-19, you may only be able to observe via video. Sometimes, arrestees will have to post bail to be released. If bail is set, let the court officer know you're arranging payment and will be coordinating with the arrestee's lawyer. If you need support making bail, connect with local organizers. There may be a bail fund for protesters in your area. No matter what happens, always relay what's happening to other people offering support. Regardless of the legal situation the arrestee ends up in, you'll need to bring some things with you. People who are getting out may be exhausted or have trouble getting home. So bring snacks, water, aspirin, bus fare, transit cards, and cigarettes. If you have a friend being held, you can bring their favorite snacks. If you know the arrestee requires specific medication, make sure to bring that too. You'll also need water and snacks to sustain yourself. Bring external batteries for charging phones as you may be waiting many hours. If you can't stay and help with jail support, dropping off materials to those waiting can be a big help. Unfortunately, there is a high risk of exposure to COVID-19 while in an enclosed jail cell. Arrestees should consider self-quarantining and getting tested. For every street action and every viral video of arrests, there are dozens of people outside the spotlight supporting the movement. It's not over till everyone's safely gotten out of prison and everyone's beaten their charges. Check out Rebel Steps Jail Support episode at rebelsteps.com forward slash jail support for more tips and resources. And follow Unicorn Riot and Channel Zero Network member It's Going Down for more updates. The Channel Zero Network sends y'all solidarity. Stay safe out there and never stop fighting for a better world. Welcome back to Molotov Now. First off, we're going to start with a roundup of some local headlines and upcoming events from our newsletter, The Communique. To get the full newsletter, follow Aberdeen Local 1312 on socials or subscribe by sending an email to the underscore communique dash subscribe at lists.riseup.net. If you have any upcoming events or stories you want featured, just get a hold of us and we will add it to the list. Upcoming events. In Bremerton at the Charleston on November 9th, in the ongoing benefit show series, Comrades with Benefits, put on by the Black Flower Collective, we have Conjuring Up Monsters, Septic, and Holes. Doors open at 8 p.m. Come out and support this awesome metal show and support a great cause. The Black Flower Collective is working hard to bring low-income housing and other great projects and services to Grace Harbor, Washington. More details on the show series and the Black Flower Collective at linktree backslash LLC. And in Seattle, near the Othello light rail stop, there will be a mutual aid assembly, Sunday, November 5th, from noon to 6 p.m. The address will be 4200 South Othello Street. Masks are required. Full details at bit.ly backslash MA Fall Assembly. Metro Boom, Howard. Propane tanks got me hella bank. 
On November 11th and 12th, from 12 to 5 p.m., the Seattle chapter of Food Not Bombs will be hosting a propane fundraiser slash art market. All funds will be going to propane canisters for homeless Seattleites. Free snacks, coffee, and zines will be offered at Pipsqueak at 173 16th Avenue. Masks required indoors and cash is preferred. They will be accepting donations of non-AI 2D and 3D work at propanenotbombs at gmail.com. Hey, what is it? It's the Anarchist Book Fair. And in Everett, it's not the book fair, it's a book fair. In Everett, December 2nd, 2023, from 2 to 7 p.m., at the Waits Motel at 1301 Lombard Avenue. Expect books and zines on the topics of mutual aid and direct action. From the river to the sea. Also in Seattle, every Saturday since October 28th at 3 p.m., the protest for Palestine march from Westlake Center to the Federal Building has been taking place. Come show your solidarity for Palestinians to end the siege on Gaza, end U.S. funding to Israel, free all Palestinian prisoners, and end media complicity at, at Seattle Westlake Center, 400 Pine Street, at 3 p.m. on this Saturday. All out for Palestine. Stand with Gaza. And online from the Solidarity Apothecary. Enrollment is open for their Herbalism, PTSD, and Traumatic Stress online course. Visit www.solidarityapothecary.org backslash herbalism and PTSD course. No one turned away for lack of funds. The Institute for Social Ecology is offering their Food and Climate Justice online course. Reading materials and lecture recordings will be provided with instructors Brian Tokar and Grace Grusheni. As the world faces intersecting crises of climate, health, and multiple social inequities, movements for climate and food justice are playing a central role towards developing a community-centered grassroots response. These movements share common themes, viewing the sources of these crises in institutions of hierarchy and domination, including capitalist structures of racism and colonialism. The extraction of resources and exploitation of marginalized populations for food and energy production, especially in the global south, are major contributors to worldwide environmental and social degradation. This course will offer a social ecology perspective on the background and potential of the climate and food justice movements to resist further damage from fossil fuels and agribusiness dominance, while building ecologically harmonious and equitable food and energy systems that can restore soil health, biodiversity, and climate stability. Each segment will highlight the leadership of frontline communities in shifting the paradigm towards the fundamental principles of non-hierarchy, direct democracy, and unity and diversity. Case studies of particular projects will include video interviews and presentations by frontline advocates as well as recommended readings and other video and audio resources. The Food and Climate Justice course begins October 23rd on Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern for eight weeks. Other courses available also include Legacies of Environmental Radicalism with Brian Tokar begins August 29th on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern for 10 weeks. Ecology, Democracy, Utopia, and Introduction to Social Ecology, co-taught by the Institute for Social Ecology faculty, begins September 14th, classes on Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern for 10 weeks. The Philosophy and Politics of Social Ecology with Kaya Heller begins November 1st on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern for 8 weeks. And next up, we have a submission from Sabotage Noise Productions with their list of upcoming rad shows and benefits. In Bremerton... At the Charleston, 333 North Callow Avenue, November 11th, 
Radical Zine Fair tabling starts at 6 p.m. Benefit show for Kids Sat Food Not Bombs. Doors at 8 p.m. Featuring Rank and Vile, Molotov Juice Box, Negligence, and Willifred. In Seattle at Left Bank Books at 92 Pike Street every first Thursday from 7.30 to 11 p.m. An open mic November 2nd. And on November 14th, Troy Andreas and Areza Kokinis, author, talk on anarchist popular power, dissent, labor, and armed struggle in Uruguay, 1956-76. to 76. Also in Seattle at Pipsqueak Gallery, 173 16th Avenue, every first Sunday from 3 to 5 p.m., Prisoner Letter Writing, every second and fifth Thursday, Craft Night, and November 26th from 6.30 to 9 p.m. is a Queer Writers Meetup. Want to list your cool show or benefit event for mutual aid, labor solidarity, prisoner support, or general anarchy? Contact Sabotage Noise Productions today. Their email is sabotagenoiseproductions at proton.me. Find them on Instagram at sabotagenoiseproductions. We had a few important mutual aid requests this month as well, so if you are in a place where you can share or donate, please check these out. First up is a housing cooperative for working class families GoFundMe. Help Possum Kingdom Housing Co-op purchase a converted church to service housing and community space in Eugene, Oregon, as it says on their GoFundMe page. Candace King is a longtime activist and black mom of four who organized with her fellow tenants into a rent strike followed by three months of powerful eviction defense. Due to a broad community support and Candace's years of organizing in Eugene, only days after the late September eviction, a community member stepped forward with an offer to sell an existing community space to the Possum Kingdom Housing Co-op. Candace and PK's other tenants are working with a land trust to purchase the converted church for a bargain sale of 150000 which we have pledged in donations. The property is listed at 520000 We are now trying to raise 35000 for renovations, inspections, zoning permits, and requirements to convert the space into housing housing, cash reserves, and program development. Countless families are facing housing insecurity and deserve affordable and and stable community housing. The Possum Kingdom Housing Co-op provides one sustainable solution to this crisis. The housing co-op operates under a cooperative model where members collectively own, manage, and govern the housing community, fostering an inclusive and democratic living environment for all residents. We are trying to raise... 35000 quickly in order to make the space move-in ready for the tenants, who have been rendered unhoused since being evicted in September. Please join us in fighting the housing crisis with a local community-driven solution that will provide real low-cost housing for decades to come. The resources raised here will be allocated conditionally towards renovations, inspections, and zoning applications, property maintenance reserve, and all resources raised here will go towards the broad benefit of the housing cooperative. For more information about the rent strike that laid the groundwork for this project, check out eugenerentstrike.org. For more info on the Possum Kingdom Housing Co-op, including where and how to make larger donations, please visit pkcoop.org. Coming out of Portland, a valued protester has been struggling with finances due to disability and health issues. She's managed to make rent this month, but her power has been cut, and she still owes $550 to get it back on. She's an active and valued member of the PDX protest scene, and has definitely earned some good karma. If you can afford to chip in anything, it would be deeply appreciated. Donations can be made to their cash app at hashtag DannyMedPDX. That's D-A-N-I-M-E-D-P-D-X. And in Aberdeen, 
Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is running their annual winter fundraiser. Please donate generously for those in need who are facing down another year without a cold weather shelter. Linktree backslash CR Mutual Aid Net for donation links and drop locations. From their flyer, your dollars can really make a difference. We are entirely funded by small grassroots donations. You can make tax-deductible donations through Open Collective, and recurring donations are the most impactful. Donate now to help us feed and clothe those in need this winter. Local News A new vacant buildings program has rolled out in Aberdeen. The City of Aberdeen's vacant building program is now in effect throughout downtown Aberdeen. The program would require property owners, quote-unquote, responsible persons, to maintain the structures they own. Many buildings throughout the area are derelict and starting to fall down. These buildings could have long been used as community emergency housing, but years of neglect have allowed them to deteriorate into the state where they are virtually useless. The program itself is to convince people who own vacant buildings downtown to maintain their buildings on the outside and the inside. The initial goal of the program is to repair and maintain vacant buildings through Aberdeen's downtown core. Yet the small fees of no more than a few hundred dollars have been roundly criticized for not being nearly enough to convince negligent and absent property owners to spend loads of money needed to repair their buildings. Many of the buildings in the crosshairs are owned by local slumlords, such as Terry Emmer, who has bought up a majority of properties in the area with the intent to sit on them until he can flip them at a profit in the near future. Once the Opportunity Zone tax credit kicks in and the flood mitigation efforts are built, property prices are expected to rise substantially. These property owners are looking to make as much profit from their investments as possible. That means if it is cheaper to incur fees while neglecting their properties, then that is what they will do. In regards to the comments the city has received from local business owners and constituents, Aberdeen Building Inspector Joss Paget said most are looking forward to seeing all the vacant buildings potentially become a functioning business slash building again. People are generally excited of the possibilities of driving through town or walking the sidewalks of downtown and seeing clean, non-boarded up buildings. Residents who are born and raised in Aberdeen talk about the memories they have in some of these buildings and are hoping to be able to see their memories come back to life. Yet the city doesn't seem concerned with getting these buildings into working order and renting them to tenants and businesses. They have a superficial concern with the appearance of the buildings in town because they are desperate to gentrify the area over the coming years. All they want is for boards to come down and paint to go up. Whether the buildings are used to house people or businesses is secondary. We can see a unique opportunity in those vacant buildings held by absentee landlords. These buildings could be used to house the ever-growing population of poor and displaced people. They could contribute to a community of care that values human life over property values and profits. These properties are far more valuable to our community than they are to the speculative investors that own them now. Rather than sitting abandoned for so long that they fall apart, we could take what we need from those who have more than they need and use the assets here in town to benefit those who live here. Somehow this is a radical notion these days. Greater Grace Harbor, Inc. hosts Aberdeen Mayoral Candidate Forum. Election season has arrived, and in order for community members to properly prepare, Greater Grace Harbor, Inc., is hosting an Aberdeen Mayoral Race Candidate Forum. This was how the article from KXRO began, but when one finished the article with a critical eye, it's easy to see that this event is simply another attempt to cater to the business community. As the article says, the October event will serve as the regional business community's exclusive opportunity to hear from candidates on the ballot for mayor of Aberdeen. Both mayoral candidates will be present to present their platforms for economic development, business, and Aberdeen's future, as well as answer questions from the audience. The plan is to keep 
this exclusive by charging for the event itself. Proceeds will, of course, go to Greater Grace Harbor, a private organization that serves as the Chamber of Commerce here locally and is essentially a union of bosses. Considering the priorities of local candidates and politicians, there is no open and free debate or presentation of other less business-focused platforms planned as of yet. It should be interesting to hear from these two what their plans are, since they essentially want the same exact thing for Aberdeen, namely gentrification. In a vacation rental debate, Westport politicians pretend to desire community over business development. Proposed moratoriums and caps on short-term rentals failed as the city works to find a fine balance. In an article from the Daily World, a resident of Westport shared a moving story of losing her valued neighbors to more and more tourists renting houses for vacations. Whereas once she used to be able to ask her community for simple favors or help them with certain chores, now she can't go next door and expect to get assistance. She has looked into moving to a part of Westport that doesn't allow for this type of rental, but it doesn't exist. The city permitted transient dwellings in all residential areas where similar scenes were playing out. After taking the issue to the city council, she and many other residents are looking for a reprieve from the gentrifying force of short-term rentals pushing out locals and destroying communities. The debate is unsurprisingly between business owners who benefit from tourists and rental income and everyday people who are concerned about the short-term rentals leading to a lack of long-term housing and pushing locals out. Since 2006, Westport City Code has included stipulations that limit occupancy and parking allocations for short-term rentals, but residents said their enforcement was lacking. In interviews with the Daily World and at city council meetings, residents reported speeding cars, overcrowded parking lots, loud parties, and other general nuisances in their neighborhoods. The council agreed in August to sharpen enforcement measures for rental rules, including $500 fines, misdemeanor offenses, and suspended licenses for rental managers in violation. But even this only covers those few who have actually sought out a license. In recent years, Westport's housing prices have grown at a faster rate than the rest of the county. According to Kevin Spivy, owner of Spivy Realty Group, following the market surge of the pandemic, home prices in western Washington are down about 3% over the last year, but in Westport have continued to grow by 7%. The average home price in Westport is $325,000, more than $30,000 higher than the Grace Harbor County average. This is well out of the budget of most workers in the area. Spivy said that many of the short-term properties were bought as second homes for the ultra-wealthy who use it as an additional source of income by renting it when not residing there themselves. Locals are increasingly forced to rent in a market with not enough rentals or be lucky enough to buy something off-market or from within the family, Spivy said. Housing is a challenge for employers and their workers. Cindy Perry, who owns the Pine Tree Bar and Grill in Westport, said many of her 12 employees struggled to find a place to stay, with four of them solving the problem by becoming roommates. According to the real estate company Zillow, the median rental price for this month in Westport is about $1,300 per month, cheaper than the average for October 2022, with four listings available. This lack of accommodations is behind the drive to convert housing to short-term rentals, as there is much more profit in short-term rentals for wealthy tourists than housing for local workers. All cities in Grace Harbor County have realized this trend is the best bet for being profitable in the future. They have all made the apparent decision to ally with business and real estate interests in gentrifying the county and making it a tourist destination above all else. Unsurprisingly, the city of Westport plans to develop its tourism industry and provide terrible service jobs for whatever workers can find housing huddled together in inadequate conditions. In a disgusting conflict of interest, discussions over the city's short-term rental policy came in tandem with propositions for historic developments. 
The review process is still underway for a 33 million goddess-style Lynx golf course and lodge in Westport Light State Park that boasts huge economic benefits for its major investors and the local government, including $3 million of annual tax revenue for local districts, 300 ongoing service jobs, and $30 million in economic impact, according to a 2022 economics impact study. This is harmful liberal dogma. The idea to find the balance between completely at-odds positions. The boss and the worker. The investors and the residents. The government and the people. A meeting of the needs of both parties is impossible, and not being able to admit that shows either a lack of intention or willful malice. The intent is clear that all city governments would prefer to make more money and appease business owners rather than build community and solidarity. If the ruling class is made to bend to the demands of the poor and vulnerable, it will be because of our collective commitment to resisting their plans through direct action and community organizing. It's time for our radical news roundup from other autonomous media organizations that we follow. Unicorn Riot is a decentralized, educational, 501c3, nonprofit media organization of journalists. Unicorn Riot engages and amplifies the stories of social and environmental struggles from the ground up. They seek to enrich the public by transforming the narrative with accessible and non-commercial independent content. You can find the following articles on their website at unicornriot.ninja. October 2nd, Black Storytellers Festival continues with heavy hearts as Matriarch passes. October 3rd, Minneapolis City Council rejects MPD Sergeant's workers' comp settlement. October 4th, Be Their Voices Presser, No More Jail Deaths. October 6th, No Charges for Georgia Troopers Who Killed Manuel Tortaguita Tehran. October 8th, hashtag no kids in prison art installation highlights youth incarceration driven by Target. October 10th, anti-Zionist Jews hold solidarity Shiva for Palestinian and Israeli lives lost. October 11th, ancient Roman graves discovered in Gaza. October 12th, Zimbabwean government mounts post-election propaganda campaign. October 15th, Hamas attacks, Israel responds. Thousands dead in new war. October 16th. The story of Chris Kaba. How London police hide behind the thin blue line. October 19th. Torgerson ruling prohibits police searches in Minnesota based on odor of cannabis. October 22nd. Pro-Palestine protests attacked in Minneapolis. October 24th. Protests against Line 5 continue in Wisconsin and the courtrooms. October 26th. Zimbabwean opposition disengages from parliament in protest of illegal recalls. October 27th, a decade after the murder of Pavlos Faisas, the battle against fascism remains urgent in Greece. October 28th, supporters of Palestinians rally in Philadelphia. It's going down, and you're invited for what they're selling. We ain't buying, there is no running, there is no hiding, there's only fighting. It's Going Down is a digital community center for anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements across so-called North America. Their mission is to provide a resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. You can find the following articles on their website at itsgoingdown.org. October 1st, In Contempt number 33, Prisoner Strikes and Rebellions, Running Down the Walls, Report Backs, and hands off leaf. October 1st, revolt across, Fi- revolt across Philadelphia, black liberation and police murder of Eddie Irizari. October 2nd, 
Anti-Fascist Art Show in San Bernardino is a huge success despite Proud Boy threats. October 5th. A trans activist is now charged with assault after defending children from neo-Nazis in a stand-your-ground state. October 9th. Standing ground on our back foot. A look at September 20th counter-protests in Hamilton and Gulf. October 9th. No charges to be filed in the police killing of Manuel Peyaz Terran. October 9th. Defend the forests everywhere. MVP construction halted in national forests due to pipeline resistance. October 9th. A note from Victor on Indigenous Peoples Day. October 14th. Help political prisoner Michael Kimball file for sentence reduction. October 15th. Israel, Palestine, and the contradictions of nationalism. October 15th. Final straw. Updates on Rojava revolution with with the Emergency Committee for Rojava. October 15th. Means and ends. Zoe Baker on historical anarchist tensions, practice, and action. October 17th. Direct actions shut down multiple Mountain Valley pipeline construction sites. October 17th. Bay Area mobilizes against Cop Campus and San Pablo, California. October 17th. Thousands take to the streets across U.S. and Canada in solidarity with Palestine as war in Gaza escalates. October 18th. Voices from the front line against the occupation. Interview with Palestinian anarchists. October 18th. Updates on schedule for the first annual Sacramento Anarchist Book Fair. October 19th. Los Angeles, California. Banner drop in solidarity with Palestine. October 21st. Announcing Anarchist Book Fair in Lawrence, Kansas, December 2nd. October 21st. Netanyahu, the global far right, and building solidarity with Palestine, in conversation with Scott Campbell. October 24th, pro-Palestinian marchers in Eugene disarm far-right attacker as fascist violence continues. October 26th, anarcho-feminists violently attacked in Mexico City. October 26th, two new zines, interviews with Israeli and Palestinian anarchists. Crime thought is everything that evades control. Crime think is a rebel alliance. CrimeThink is a banner for anonymous, collective action. CrimeThink is an international network of aspiring revolutionaries. CrimeThink is a desperate venture. Check out these articles at CrimeThink.com. October 8th, a nuclear superpower and a dispossessed people. An anarchist from Jaffa on the escalation in Palestine and Israeli repression. October 17th, from the Galilee to Gaza, a voice from Palestine. That's all for this month's news. Be sure to follow the Channel Zero Network for more frequent updates on these stories and more. Up next, we have a reading from Crime Thinks Zine, Seven Myths About Police. But first, here is Prison Song by System of a Down. Hit it! Prison. They're trying to build a prison! They're trying to build a prison! They're trying to build a prison! So you and me are living! 
prisons, you don't even flinch. All our taxes paying for your wars against the new non-rich. Minor drug offenders fill your prisons, you don't even flinch. All our taxes paying for your wars against the new non-rich. Are now your global policy Now you police the globe Mother, I'm not crack my smack my bitch Right here in Hollywood Drug money's used to rig elections And train brutal co-responsored dictators around the world They're trying to build a prison 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 So you and me to live in Another prison to stop Another prison to stop Another prison to die Welcome back to Molotov Now. In order to encapsulate the argument for the total abolition of police in a concise enough format for our podcast, we have chosen to read from the excellent article and zine from CrimeThink entitled Seven Myths About Police, which puts forth the argument through a debunking of these seven common myths. 1. The police exercise legitimate authority. 2. The police are ordinary workers just like us. They should be our allies. 3. Maybe there are some bad apples, but police officers are good people. 4. Police can win any confrontation, so we shouldn't antagonize them. 5. Police are a mere distraction from the real enemy, not worth our wrath or attention. 6. We need police to protect us. And 7. Resisting the police is violent and makes you no better than them. In an article overflowing with compassion, understanding, and love, CrimeThink lays down the basic bare bones of an argument against the existence of the police, and gives us a reason to resist them. The zine goes even further than we will read today, and gives the reader concrete actions to take to resist the police where they live. To check out the full article and print your own zines for distribution, go to crimethink.com and search for Seven Myths About Police. Myth number one, the police exercise legitimate authority. In fact, the average police officer is not a legal expert. He probably knows his department protocol, but very little about the actual laws. This means his enforcement involves a great deal of bluffing, improvisation, and dishonesty. Police lie on a regular basis. For example, I just got a report of someone of your description committing a crime around here. Want to show me some ID? This is not to say we should unthinkingly accept laws as legitimate either. The entire judicial system protects the privileges of the wealthy and powerful. 
Obeying laws is not necessarily morally right. It may even be immoral. Slavery was legal. Aiding escaped slaves illegal. The Nazis came to power in Germany via democratic elections and passed laws through prescribed channels. We should aspire to the strength of conscience to do what we know is best, regardless of laws and police intimidation. Myth number two. The police are ordinary workers just like us. They should be our allies. Unfortunately, there's a big gap between should be and are. The role of the police is to serve the interests of the ruling class. Anyone who has not had a bad experience with them is likely privileged, submissive, or both. Today's police officers know exactly what they're getting into when they join the force. People in uniform don't just get cats out of trees. Yes, most take the job because of economic pressure, but needing a paycheck is no excuse for evicting families, harassing young people of color, or pepper-spraying demonstrators. Those whose consciences can be bought are everyone's potential enemies, not allies. This fairy tale is more persuasive when it's couched in strategic terms. For example, every revolution succeeds at the moment the armed forces refuse to make war on their fellows. Therefore, we should focus on seducing the police to our side. But the police are not just any workers. They're the ones who choose to base their livelihoods on defending the prevailing order. Thus, the least likely to be sympathetic to those who wish to change it. In this context, it makes more sense to oppose the police as such than to seek solidarity with them. As long as they serve their masters, they cannot be our allies. By denouncing the institution of police and demoralizing individual officers, we encourage them to seek other livelihoods so we can one day find common cause with them. Myth number three. Maybe there are some bad apples, but police officers are good people. Perhaps some police officers have good intentions, but once again, insofar as they obey orders rather than their consciences, they cannot be trusted. There's something to be said for understanding the systemic nature of institutions, rather rather than attributing every injustice to the shortcomings of individuals. Remember the story of the man who, tormented by fleas, managed to catch one between his fingers? He scrutinized it for a long time before placing it back at the spot on his neck where he had caught it. His friends, confounded, inquired why on earth he would do such a thing. That wasn't the one that was biting me, he explained. Myth number four. Police can win in any confrontation, so we shouldn't antagonize them. With all their weapons, equipment, and surveillance, the police can't seem invincible. But this is an illusion. They are limited by all sorts of invisible constraints. Bureaucracy, public opinion, communication breakdowns, an overloaded judicial system... If they don't have vehicles or facilities available to transport and process a great number of arrestees, for example, they can't make mass arrests. This is why a motley crowd armed only with tear gas canisters shot at them can hold off a larger, more organized, better equipped police force. Contests between social unrest and military might don't play out according to the rules of military engagement. Those who have studied police, who can predict what they are prepared for and what they can and cannot do, can often outsmart and outmaneuver them. Such small victories are especially inspiring for those who chafe under the heel of police violence on a daily basis. In the collective unconscious of our society, the police are the ultimate bastion of reality, the force that ensures that things stay the way they are. Taking them on and winning, however temporarily, shows that reality is negotiable. Myth number five. Police are a mere distraction from the real enemy, not worth our wrath or attention. Alas, tyranny is not just a matter of politicians or executives. They would be powerless without those who do their bidding. When we contest their rule, we are also contesting the submission that keeps them in power, and sooner or later, we're sure to come up against the, some of those who submit. 
That being said, it's true that police are no more integral to hierarchy than the oppressive dynamics in our own communities. They are simply the external manifestation on a larger scale of the same phenomenon. If we are to contest domination everywhere, rather than specializing in combating certain forms of it while leaving others unchallenged, we have to be prepared to confront it both in the streets and in our own bedrooms. We can't expect to win on one front without fighting on the other. We shouldn't fetishize confrontations with uniformed foes. We shouldn't forget the power imbalances in our ranks. But neither should we be content merely to manage the details of our own oppression in a non-hierarchical manner. Myth number six, we need police to protect us. According to this line of thinking, even if we might aspire to live in a society without police in the distant future, we need them today, for people are not ready to live together peacefully without armed enforcers. As if the social imbalances and fear maintained by the police are peace. Those who argue that police sometimes do good things bear the burden of proving that those same good things could not be accomplished at least as well by other means. In any case, it's not as if police-free society is suddenly going to appear overnight just because someone spray-paints fuck the police on a wall. The protracted struggle it will take to free our communities from police repression will probably go on as long as it takes us to learn to coexist peacefully. A community that can't sort out its own conflicts can't expect to triumph against a much more powerful occupying force. In the meantime, opposition to police should be seen as a rejection of one of the most egregious sources of oppressive violence, not an assertion that without police there would be none. But if we can ever defeat and disband the police, we will surely be able to defend ourselves against less organized threats. Myth number seven. Resisting the police is violent. It makes you no better than them. According to this line of thinking, violence is inherently a form of domination and thus inconsistent with opposing domination. Those who engage in violence play the same game as their oppressors, thereby losing from the outset. This is dangerously simplistic. Is a woman who defends herself against a rapist no better than a rapist? Were slaves who revolted no better than the slaveholders? There is such a thing as self-defense. In some cases, violence enforces power imbalances. In others, it challenges them. For people who still have faith in an authoritarian system or God, following the rules, whether legal or moral, is the top priority at whatever cost. They believe they will be rewarded for doing so, regardless of what happens to others as a result. Whether such people call themselves conservatives or pacifists makes little difference in the end. On the other hand, for those of us who take responsibility for ourselves, the most important question is what will serve to make the world a better place. Sometimes this may include violence. Police are people too, and deserve the same respect to do all living things. The point is not that they deserve to suffer or that we should bring them to justice. The point is that, in purely pragmatic terms, they must not be allowed to brutalize people or impose an unjust social order. Though it can be empowering for those who have spent their lives under the heel of oppression to contemplate finally settling the score with their oppressors, liberation is not a matter of exacting revenge, but rendering it unnecessary. Therefore, while it may sometimes even be necessary to set police on fire, this should not be done out of a spirit of vengeful self-righteousness, but from a place of care and compassion, if not for the police themselves, at least for all those who would otherwise suffer at their hands. The Conclusion Delegitimizing police is not only beneficial for those they target, but also for police officers' families and police officers themselves. Not only do police officers have disproportionately high rates of domestic violence and child abuse, they're also more likely to get killed, commit suicide, and struggle with addiction than most sectors of society. Anything that encourages police officers to quit their jobs is in their best interest, as well as the interest of their loved ones and society at large. Let's create a world in which no one oppresses or is oppressed, in which no one has to live in fear. From Frederick Douglass
Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them, and these will continue until they are resisted with either words or blows, or both. And now it's time for a short musical break. When we return, we will have an interview with Robin from Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons about the abolitionist perspectives being advanced and the radical actions being taken in rural eastern Kentucky by a grassroots collection of residents determined to halt the construction of a federal prison. But first, here is Mumu Fresh and Queen Cora with Can You Imagine? Hit it! The question is, can you see freedom? Is it bondage never existing? Mm-hmm. Before he could even afford kids Top of his class, his friends called him the teacher's pet A credit to his race, always smiles on his face On the ground side of town, he kept smiling and taste Till one day he crossed the train track To a new school, and they ain't never seen that But the state promised new opportunities To be stared in the face and criticized with impunity Needless to say, his grades began to plummet He fought every day or ran away from it Nigga this, nigga that was more than he could stomach He built a school that could take on any crumble It was long nose, Snooky, big black and chooky Roscoe, Bo Chief, and Lil Pookie They met us at the middle school playground For the white gangs and they lead a ton of boots to come around They fought one-on-one and two-on-two Till the cops pulled up and beat my dad black and blue They charged him with assault and kicked him out of the school See, the son of the office filled with a ton of boots My dad was 12 years old with a criminal record And where could he go where they wouldn't check it? They saw him as a threat set up a child neglected And unprotected by his system and they infected Sometimes I wish I could have raised my dad Given him opportunities that my grandma never had I would have flown him around the globe with my band And placed the whole world in the palm of his hands Imagine Can you imagine what we could be? Can you imagine the power we
Welcome back to Molotov Now. We're joined on the podcast by Robin from Fight Toxic Prisons to talk with us a little bit about the campaign Building Community Not Prisons in Eastern Kentucky. Would you please introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, a description of yourself for our listeners, and any projects you're involved in that are relevant to today's discussion? Sure. Uh, So my name is Robin. I use she, her pronouns, and I've been a community organizer with Fight Toxic Prisons since about 2016. I'm involved in abolitionist and environmental justice organizing in in Kentucky and also on the national landscape. And right now, I'm here to talk about Building Community Not Prisons Coalition, which FTP is a part of. Um, there's a lot of organizations involved. We're just one of one of several, but it's been, I think, some of our most successful work in all the years we've existed. So we're very excited about it. Awesome. So before we get into the ongoing campaign in Kentucky, can you tell us a little bit about Campaign to Fight Toxic Prisons itself? How and why was it started? What sort of goals does it have? And what methods does it use to achieve those goals? So Fight Toxic Prisons um, started in 2015. Uh, a few abolitionist environmental justice organizers happened to meet up and realized that they had some frustrations that people weren't talking about the overlaps of those two types of organizing. And so we we had people from the environmental side saying, like, we have some really great direct action tactics and a ton of like a ton of tactics that involve like legal research and paper jamming, which is like using formal processes to hold up the opposition and basically make their work take a really long time to buy yourself time to oppose them. And then there were folks on the abolitionist side saying that, you know, prisoners, and and some of them were prisoners, prisoners are getting left out of these conversations a lot of the time, even though prisons and jails and carceral structures are some of the most heavily hit environmental toxic spaces that, that people create. So our goals are really to help folks network within these different spaces. One, to explore the intersections of the work and two, to share tools and resources because um, all of these things, you know, structural racism, incarceration, any type of exploitation of people in the land is ultimately all tied to profit motive and also to any sort of sense of one group being better than another or more deserving of another. And we know that that is not true. So we think that it's more effective to organize together and to explore these intersections so that we can win many campaigns, not just abolitionist campaigns, not just environmental justice campaigns, but all of all of the equity and justice that we need to not just survive, but to thrive. So we're big on a and using a diversity of tactics is what we like to call it. We believe that all tactics are valid. They just need to be used strategically at the right moments and uh, and in an escalation plan. So that would include, you know, some of the, the paperwork, lawsuits, things like that, that I think are more accessible and more comfortable for a lot of people. But that also includes direct action. We've had we've had actions where people have physically gone and like done a sit in essentially and shut down the entrance to some carceral facilities. I'm trying to think the very first campaign against the first iteration of this prison, about 50 of us blocked the road in Washington, D.C. so that the Bureau of Prisons couldn't work that day. So we like a wide variety. All right. So we're here today to talk about your guys' campaign and how it fits into a larger framework for police and prison abolition. I understand this campaign in eastern Kentucky has been going on for years, 
Can you give us some of the history of the proposed prison and the resistance to it? Definitely. So this prison has actually been in the works since about 2005. There's a a politician there, Hal Rogers, who has been pushing for it since then. He's been the main proponent of it. And he he has insisted that it's going to bring some sort of economic boon to the area and has also had prisons built in other counties he represents. Now, we're able to look at those counties and see that they didn't have any tangible benefit. And in fact, some of them are in worse shape now than they were before the prisons were built there. So the campaign kind of came to a head in, I would say, 2016-ish. A lot of organizing began locally when folks in Letcher County started taking some direct actions, interrupting events that Howe was speaking at and demanding that they have actual economic opportunities and not just be sold these terrible jobs in a prison and jobs that would lead them to be making money off of the backs of the people they would be locking up. Fight Toxic Prisons ended up collaborating with them so that they could focus on the local organizing, which is very complicated, especially when folks are demanding more jobs and higher paying jobs with benefits and things like that there and completely deserve them. By them focusing on that, we were allowed to focus on the national landscape since this would be a federal prison. And a federal prison can, I believe they can have people there from within 500 miles of where they were first incarcerated. So that's really almost half the country that this impacts. It's the whole country, really. Um, We ended up building a campaign together, kind of mixing tactics and mixing these like on the ground work with the national level work, which included shutting down that road through Washington, D.C. And that was in 2016 at our very first Fight Toxic Prisons Convergence, where we brought together a few hundred people to talk about these overlaps of incarceration and and environmental justice and structural, you know, racism, things like that. I think it was 2018, we had a team of some environmental lawyers that were working with us, several partners, and ended up collaborating with 21 federal prisoners to sue the Bureau of Prisons for not taking into account the environmental impacts of of how that space would affect them, because these people were all at risk of being transferred there. And at that point, that's when the Bureau of Prisons withdrew their record of decision, which is withdrawing the paperwork saying they're moving forward with the project. So at the time, we considered that a win. It was super exciting. And it was, it was, I think, the biggest shutdown of a proposed prison that's ever happened in this country. Now that it's been brought back up again, just in a slightly different form, just by changing like the security level and, and a little bit of the layout of the land and things like that, but essentially the same prison plan. We know that that really wasn't a complete win because the money was still sitting there waiting to become a prison. The people in Letcher County were still sitting there without jobs. And now that we've had some massive floods and environmental damage there, that money is even more needed to rebuild the infrastructure. So that's kind of how we come to this current coalition. And we're trying to focus not just on stopping the construction of the prison, but also on generating opportunities in the communities that are being used to to build prisons and also in the communities that are having a lot of folks taken out of them and becoming prisoners. Yeah, so often prisons are presented as economic opportunities for communities. 
I know in our own town here in Aberdeen, uh, the Stafford Creek Correction Center is the second largest employer in the county. Uh, yet Thanks. turnover there is incredibly high. It's not really that well-paying of a job for what you have to do. Not to mention the fact that the prison probably incarcerates more people from the county that it employs. <laughs> Definitely. We are working on some stuff locally here, too. Very, very early stages in uh, another like somewhat kind of small town county in Kentucky. And uh, our jail is constantly full all the time. And they'll tell me it's not full because so many people are on home incarceration um, as if that that's like drastically better and they should be grateful for it. But it's just an ongoing problem. And it always just, when it's brought up, people point fingers and say, well, it's not my responsibility. You know, the jailer says, well, I can't fix it. I just house them. I don't bring them in. You have to talk to the cops. And the cops say, well, we don't make the laws. You got to talk to the judges and the legal system and all of this stuff. And so there's this constant shifting of responsibility instead of saying, hey, like this might not be all mine, but I have a part in it. Maybe I can influence what we're doing here. So who were the leading players in the first push to block the prison? It sounds like it arose out of like a grassroots local sort of campaign. It did. And I am trying to think of their name. It was a group of folks who lived in Letcher County or in surrounding counties. And they got together and basically built their own organization that was a replica of a similar one that existed and had a very similar name. So they were kind of mimicking something that already existed, except using it to um, get people comfortable talking to them. I can't remember what that name was because it was so innocuous, which I think was smart. You know, they, they weren't like citizens against the prison or anything like that. They were, it was basically a citizen's board to discuss how things could be made better there. And those are some of the folks that we ended up building some long lasting relationships with and are working with again now in this even larger campaign. Oh. I talked prisons um i live in kentucky we've had a few other organizers who who have lived here at least temporarily so we had a lot of connections already there so it was kind of just luck in a way and what role did abolitionists play in the campaign to begin with and what sort of arguments did they put forth well i think there were abolitionists involved from the get-go i mean a lot of folks in eastern kentucky while they may not use the word abolition a lot when the concept is described, you know, they're all for it. And so that was part of what I think informed the campaign and what built a lot of our ability to threaten our opponent, the Bureau of Prisons, because that's a big opponent. You know, we were fighting the federal government in this biggest project that they they had ever proposed and we're going to try to move forward with. And we, uh, I think having abolitionists involved allowed us to go for so long because abolition is long work, you know, like I don't, <laughs> I know the jail's not going to suddenly close in my town tomorrow and everybody be free, cool as that would be. And so I think having abolition as like the forefront of the campaign, or at least like this underlying current at all times really let us take some breaks and remember that like none of this was going to be accomplished easily or quickly. And I think that that's allowed us to come back to it now with like a renewed energy and, you know, smarter with more resources, with more partners. Yeah, well, that's good. You guys got a little bit of a break to breathe, at least. So you'd say that abolitionists were successful in advancing those sorts of ideas into a more mainstream campaign? I think so. Yeah. 
Because coming back to building community, not prisons now, you know, we have this broader group of folks from really all over the country, but also a a really good sized group of folks in Letcher and the surrounding counties. And, you know, we got together to have an in-person meeting and really formalize this structure a little bit. And part of that is because something we struggled with in that first campaign was just clarity of communication, knowing who's doing what, knowing what to expect of one another and, and having like, you know, conflict resources and ways to work through tension. Things are going a lot smoother now, I think, because we formalized some things. Now we tried to formalize them in a very like, kind of anarchist way that allows for flexibility and allows for folks to, as long as they're following these like core agreements, take on the tactics that they think are most effective. The goal was really not to like limit people or only be able to do one thing at a time. It was to foster this, this sense of freedom, but also safety with one another. Yeah. It sounds very similar to the campaign going on in Atlanta right now. Yeah, we definitely have some FTP members, uh, not me personally, but some other members that have been in touch with them regularly. And so we try to stay in touch with a lot of campaigns that are going on around the U.S. And, you know, like I said, one of our goals is to share strategies and tools. So if we try something that works and we run into somebody else with questions, we're like, hey, you should try this tool. It, It worked here. Adapt it to your context, of course. But having that widespread community i think has it's let us make smarter choices and more strategic choices so obviously with abolition being the long work y'all are still campaigning against the prison being built in letcher county what happened with that campaign after the bureau of prisons uh, withdrew its notice of intent after that well we were just about to have another convergence we did them for several years in a row generally late summer time and so I know we celebrated a lot as FTP, but also I think we were all exhausted. We we had kind of run the course, and I think because we didn't have as strong a setup as we needed, it was hard for us to to like immediately get together and debrief. And that has that did make it more difficult to then set up this time because we had to kind of go back and look through our records and try to remember how exactly things went, you know, five and 10 years ago. So yeah, I think we were all tired and we kind of kept some of these relationships, but also moved on to just doing other things. It can be refreshing to not have to focus on the same project anymore when you've been doing it for years and years. So with the campaign being led by Fight Talks at Prisons, what new members have you found that have joined in this new coalition? Well, I would say that Fight Toxic Presence has helped with some of the structural stuff, um, but that it's really being led by everybody and, and especially folks on the ground. We're not trying to make their life harder. And they're the ones that ultimately, you know, have to go to the grocery store and hear about this and run into the people who are pushing it. They have to run into their city council who might be trying to get this here because of the supposed economic benefits. So there's a lot more day-to-day impact on the folks who live there. And there will be a lot more impact on the folks who would have to live right next to this prison. Um, One member, his land was actually plotted out in the original prison plan. And he, being incredibly brave, stood up 
all on his own at the time and said, you're not taking my land. I'm not doing that. I take care of animals here. Um, you know, I, I care for the earth. You're not going to degrade this area by using it for something so terrible. It was also um, another section of the property had a coal slurry pond on it, which would have been incredibly bad for the water supply that the prisoners then would have been forced to use. So just another tidbit about the about the area. So what does on the ground outreach look like for this campaign? It's a lot of one on one there locally, I would say. It's a lot of in person individual conversations. And that's how we've ended up with, you know, probably good 15, 20 people that are like consistently dedicated to working on this campaign there. And then at least that many here, you know, regionally and nationally. There there are weekly meetings, there are monthly meetings, there's always pieces of it moving. And like I said, there's a wide variety. We've ended up partnering with lawyers from prestigious schools who reached out and said, hey, we heard about this and it's not cool what they're trying to do there. How can we support? There's been other folks that tended to do more like electoral politics who are maybe not as familiar with abolition, but looking at the campaign and looking at the opposition to it are, are really starting to learn more about that. And they can then bring their expertise in some some other tactics that like fight toxic prison doesn't necessarily engage in regularly. But yeah, a lot of the outreach has been as in-person as we can make it and as individual as we can make it. We realized that, that while the group's knew each other in the first campaign, I don't think as many individuals had those like deep relationships that would have held it together easier after the campaign ended the first time. And really the relationships are what keep people in the work when it is long and, and can be tedious and discouraging and emotionally draining. You know, we're dealing with, with some pretty heavy stuff that's harmful to the earth. It's harmful to people. And it's so invasive. It's so everywhere. So what gets us through that is is being comrades first. And that's FTP's motto is that we are comrades first. I think that's how our smaller team has been working together since 2016. And not only, you know, still doing some good stuff, I think, but a lot of people point out, like, you all seem to actually like each other. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, we do. We're friends, you know? When one of us is suddenly like, my rent went up, you know, I'm not sure where I'm going to live. We might not work on our regular work at our meeting next time we're all like on Zoom together. We might look for some housing and try to brainstorm who do we know in the area? Well, is there a different city where I've got connections that you could go crash for a while? Um, We've tried to apply that same mentality to this kind of work, too, where we're, we're human beings first. We're not just trying to be productive together. We're trying to build better than like these systems of exploitation are telling us we we have a right to. And in order to do that, we can't be treating each other as disposable as, as you know, as we've been taught is acceptable. Yeah, that community building and culture building is a really important part of the work. And um, I think it's it might be the hardest part to do. I think it's the easy part to kind of skip over or keep putting off. And we've seen that and, you know, we've definitely done that and had to learn to do better the next time as we've worked together. So is there an equivalent coalition that is promoting the prison that you guys are directly in opposition to? 
I wouldn't say there's a coalition. A lot of it is how Rogers, who's, what is he? He's the federal representative. Um, but there are some local politicians who, you know, for, for whatever reason, they buy what he's selling and they seem to genuinely think that this is going to be great for their county and great for Appalachia in general. And then there's local folks who may not be as heavily invested, but really just they don't know what else to ask for. This is the solution being being proposed to them. It's the only solution it's sometimes being proposed to them. So saying no to it doesn't make a lot of sense to them if they don't feel like they have other options. And I think that's the biggest thing that we're opposing, like outside of, you know, dealing with the government systems, I think we're having to fight this culture of just accepting the absolute worst because it's all we're being handed. So we're trying to support folks in dreaming bigger and in feeling confident to say like, well, what, you know, this is half a billion dollars. What would you spend it on? What do you see that your community actually needs? And, uh, and we've asked a lot of people that, and, and that was part of the, the early campaign. The locals started doing a, a hashtag campaign called R444 million saying like, mm. we, you know, I know you all have a ton of ideas. How would you spend this money here? And they got hundreds of ideas and none of them were present. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask when you guys are doing the, these one-on-one sort of, um, outreach, what's the narrative that you guys are trying to get across? Well, I think sometimes that depends on who we're reaching out to, but the main one is that this will hurt all of us. You know, it it might not be as obvious how it would hurt some groups over others, but that we all deserve better and that tons of resources exist. And, you know, like that money exists. It's been sitting there for years, which was the problem. Um, So there's no reason that after Letcher County flooded and, hundreds of people lost their homes that those haven't been built back up yet. There's no reason. There's no good reason that these problems have not been solved and that things have not been repaired, except that the money is sitting there waiting to become harmful structures. Yeah. And when you are doing it one-on-one and individually, that gives you more space to sort of tailor the argument, whether it needs to be economic or social or moral, depending on the given person. Definitely. And actually, as part of our onboarding process, the initial meetup with people is mostly to let them talk and for them to express their concerns, their questions, you know, maybe how they would want to get involved, what kind of skills they feel like they could contribute. And that goes back to that flexible but somewhat formalized structure I was talking about, where we want people to have a clear idea of how they can plug in and to feel productive and feel like they're contributing and connecting to to the bigger picture without feeling like they have to carry it by themselves. When doing that kind of outreach, what kind of unique challenges have you guys faced from living in a rural area ongoing an abolitionist project? Well, <laughs> sometimes the internet does not cooperate. And that's always a challenge here in Kentucky. I think, you know, my, my area is not nearly as rural as Letcher County, but man, it just does not work sometimes. It's not been set up to work very well for a lot of us. And then when you do get into the more rural, like far eastern Kentucky areas, a lot of people have to drive about an hour to get where they're going. And so there's a really big time commitment 
for folks to be participating in these conversations. I think a lot of us have gotten so used to Zoom and decent phone service and things like that, that we might take for granted how much work it can take some people just to have a 10 minute conversation with somebody. But when those things aren't functioning very well, and sometimes, you know, maybe they're not the best tool of communication when you're really trying to like change someone's mind or address some deep and intense questions. You know, it's, I think the time that it takes and then the slowness of it, it might take multiple conversations to get somebody on the same page. And you might move them very slowly from being like, I don't know, maybe the prison would be fine to, hmm, well, now I'm not sure, to then maybe actively opposing it. But, you know, it's that little bit at a time. What has been the biggest pushback you've received from citizens when organizing against the prison? You know, that's when I wish <laughs> I wish my comrade was here because I think she would have maybe a more precise answer than I do. I would say the most persistent pushback is the argument that, but we need prisons. You know, why not here if it can make money here or if the land's here and it's just going to happen anyway? Why such opposition to it? It's the feeling that it's inevitable when we know that it isn't. But I think it takes a lot of creativity and a lot of support to be able to imagine a world where it's not inevitable and not everybody has that support. Yeah. I think that's an important linking of, you know, this one campaign, this one prison to the idea of wider prison abolition as a whole, because if it is just about stopping one prison, those questions are valid as to, well, why not here? But if the campaign is more broadly focused and advancing total abolition, then it is a real culture shift that we have to accomplish in order to get people to realize that, like you said, it's not inevitable. Prisons aren't inevitable and they're not um, actually necessary for a functioning society. Yeah. And I I was really, really proud of us when we did have our in-person retreat that we all collectively agreed, even though not necessarily everybody in the room would define themselves as an abolitionist, we all agreed that we are not okay with this money going to any prison anywhere. You know, we're not just trying to scoot this problem down the road. We're not just trying to say not in my backyard. We're trying to say that this shouldn't be in anybody's backyard. This shouldn't be our way of functioning. Can you think of any examples of how the rural nature of your area has actually given you some opportunities or perhaps advantages in this type of organizing as compared to more densely populated areas? Well, I think that folks there have a really deep connection to the land. That's a great place to start from because some of the arguments against this prison are that it would be built on top of a former strip mine. Now, there's no reason to think that that land is safe and fully settled from having been pretty recently mined um, to, to really construct things on in the first place. You know, there's a lot There's a lot of time that it takes for the land to recover from something like that when it's even possible. But then having that coal slurry pond, you know, that would have been right uphill from the prison. People were pretty sympathetic to that, even if in general they felt like we needed prisons and that some people deserve to be locked up because folks in these rural areas have also suffered from, you know, poor water quality. Pretty well accepted that there are certain counties in Kentucky, like you don't drink the tap water. Like that would <laughs> that'd be a wild thing to do. Why would it occur to you to even attempt that? Which is always interesting when folks from from areas with 
decent water quality come there and just out of habit might go to get a glass of water from the sink. But they know there you, you just don't do that. So it sounds like this campaign has abolition of at least one prison as its central tenant. And I definitely appreciate the additional demands that the money be reappropriated to where it's most needed. Mm-hmm. What do you think could be learned from this experience for prison and police abolitionists in regards to forming a coalition and finding affinity with such a wide swath of people, some of whom don't necessarily want to abolish prisons and police? I think what we've seen work and what that what others can learn is to set yourself up for success intentionally and slowly if needed. We always say to build at the speed of trust. And sometimes that's slower than you want it to be. And sometimes it can be frustrating for people on on all sides of it. But it lets you work faster and more intensely later when you need to and be able to care for each other, which, you know, over the course of this campaign, we've already done one big push against um, against some legislation. And we know we'll have to do it again when the environmental impact statement comes out, which is is some of the paperwork that they need in order to move this process forward. You know, there's a 45 day comment period on that paper, and that's a big opportunity for us, but it's also a short turnaround time. So we know that when things like that happen, it's going to be a little rough. But I think we have built our coalition in a way that we can handle it. We've already seen that we can handle intense things like that. Um, And then we, you know, get some rest and come back stronger. I would also say to have an intentional process around dealing with conflict, because it's one of those things that it's it's easy to not talk about and to feel like everyone's going to get along forever while everyone's getting along. But that's just not how reality is. You know, even people that love each other and that are 99% of the time on the same page, when you're under stress and you're doing hard stuff, and you're trying to make decisions together on a regular basis, there's going to be disagreement. And so just accepting that that's part of it and not seeing it as a negative, but just seeing it as a way that we grow together, I think has let us get through some tense moments. It's kind of like having an emergency plan. You know, you don't make the emergency plan while the emergency is actively happening. You want to have it from the get-go so that you can then implement it when you need it. Yeah, we've definitely experienced the need for building into the group up front the commitment to engage in conflict resolution in our mutual aid work here. Do you guys incorporate any mutual aid into the work that you do, trying to provide for the community's needs so that their economic situation is a little bit better? Well, I think that's a major component of one of our demands is that this money go back into the community. Um, As far as like how we support our local organizers, I would say there's mutual aid there. We want this work to be accessible to folks. And so sometimes that means some folks need to be paid in order to be able to to spend the time and their capacity on it. Uh, sometimes that is meant in, you know, in the past for us, making sure that someone had a phone when they didn't and, and various things like that. So I wouldn't say that that's like a heavy focus of it at the moment, but it's part of that way of taking care of one another and being comrades first that, you know, if, if the issue is that they're having to work full time and so they're busy, we say, well, you know, can we help fix that if, if we want you here or how can we work around that? How can we make sure that you have transportation funds? How can we make sure your car is up and running so you can get where you need to go? 
So what are the things that you hope people can learn from the prominent failures and successes made along the way from this campaign in regards to future campaigns and the broader abolition movement? I think a big thing would be to like keep going. And, you know, we've collaborated with a lot of folks who have done anti-prison and anti-jail, anti-police work around the country. And those campaigns don't always win what they set out to win. And that can be a hard thing to bounce back from. And, you know, it was hard for us, I think, looking at that initial campaign from our outside of Letcher County perspective and feeling like we won, you know, it's done. And then hearing from folks on the ground that like, yeah, but, you know, there's still an old strip mine there just sitting there. There's still all of these issues that we need support with um, and we need resources to deal with them because, you know, the folks there have solutions. It's just about getting the resources there so they can be implemented by the people who have to live (laughs) with those solutions. So, yeah, I would say being able to bounce back from a loss, from criticism from feedback that things didn't look as positive from someone else's perspective as maybe they did from yours. And then you incorporate that and say, okay, well, we're trying again. How can we do it better this time? Just always getting better. Because none of these campaigns are ever going to be perfect. But I do think each one we've done has been stronger than the last. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So is there anything that we haven't covered or any topics that you want to talk about before we wrap up? I mean, I guess just generally like a statement on the area and and the local work there, if I can make one. So I just want to say that um, a lot of times in these conversations and in this one in particular about rural counties and about areas that are undergoing a lot of like economic struggles like there can be this tendency to like frame them as like needing help or needing something brought in to them and i do want to be careful about how i talk about that because like i said like the solutions are there the people closest to a problem are the ones also closest to the solution and so i think one of the biggest strengths of this campaign is our local organizers and the nuance that they see and the really hard conversations that they have with folks that, you know, may not be completely in agreement or may not be in agreement at all. And they still do the work of seeing their humanity and, and living with them and having to interact with them on a regular basis and of holding this tension between like certain areas being polluted or mined or, you know, being exploited to some degree and also still respecting those areas and not treating them as disposable or as, you know, wasted and not in not worth caring about anymore. And so I I appreciate just the like push and pull that they <laughs> that they have to endure to hold all of that. Well, we want to thank you for your time today and for your insights on the approach that y'all are taking out in Kentucky. We are facing the building of two new jails here in our county and are grateful for the notes, comrade. None of us are free until we're all free. How can our audience find, follow, and support this important campaign and fight toxic prisons? They can go to buildingcommunitynotprisons.com. There you'll see a little bit of info about the campaign, although we are working on some website updates. But there's, there should be a way to email and get in touch with us there. We also have social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our 
sorry, X, forgot whatever it's called now. <laughs> uh, we're just trying to use whatever the people are on. And yeah, if folks have specific questions or would want to plug in as an individual or an organization, we are always open to new partners. The only thing that we ask is agreeing by our, our fundamental strategic agreements, which have covered very broadly that we're not going to build new prisons. We're going to invest these resources in the people that need them. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on today. I hope you guys are ultimately successful. Appreciate it. Solidarity, comrade. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Molotov Now. We hope you found it informative and inspiring. Our goal with the podcast is to reach out beyond our boundaries and connect the happenings in our small town with the struggles going on in major urban centers. We want to talk to you if you're a big city organizer. We think we have a lot you can learn from, and we know you have much to teach us. If you would like to come on the show, please email us at sabo underscore media at riseup.net with the header Molotov Now, and we will be in touch about setting up an interview and crafting an episode to feature you. Don't forget, if you like what we do here and want to support it, you can do that by going to linktree backslash AO1312 and clicking donate or scrolling to the bottom for Patreon. You have to go check out the amazing shirts up at feralthreads.square.site. All sales from these shirts are also donated to our comrades with the Black Flower Collective. Thank you. We would like to give a shout out to our friends at the South Florida Anti-Repression Committee who have launched a solidarity campaign for two individuals facing 12 years for an alleged graffiti attack on a fake Christian anti-choice clinic that does not provide any reproductive care. This federal overreach and use of the FACE Act, an act meant to protect people visiting reproductive clinics from harassment, is unprecedented. To support this solidarity campaign, please visit bit.ly backslash free our fighters. We want to thank the Black Flower Collective for their continued support and wish them luck in their fundraising efforts. To support them or learn more, their website is blackflowercollective.noblogs.org. Collectiva, the anarchist Mastodon server, is growing faster than ever thanks to Elon Musk's stupidity as many activists close their accounts for bluer skies, as can be seen in the fluctuation of followers over on IGD's socials. Join at collectiva.social. That's K-O-L-E-K-T-I-V-A dot social. And follow us and other online activists on decentralized, federated internet. Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network is holding a fundraiser for their weekly meals with Food Not Bombs. To donate, visit linktree backslash crmutualaidnet. The communique is looking for artist and author submissions. Please write to sabo underscore media at riseup.net to submit your entry. Sabotage Noise Productions will be throwing a benefit concert at The Chuck in Bremerton to support Chehalis River Mutual Aid Network this July 20th at 8 p.m. Check out Facebook for more info. As reported previously, Katie Hussey is still struggling in the wake of harassment by Dayton police that has cost her her employment and housing. Luckily, the charges have been dropped, but she has lost everything because of this and still faces an uphill battle in getting back on her feet. Please send any donations to Venmo at Katie Hussey, that's K-A-T-Y-H-U-S-S-E-Y, or Cash App Katie Hussey to help them during this time. Thank you to Pixel Passionate for producing our soundtrack. Please check out their website at www.radicalpraxisclothing.com and check out their portfolio in our show notes. And finally, thank you to the Channel Zero Anarchist Podcast Network. We are proud to be members of a network that creates and shares leading critical analysis, news, and actions from an anarchist perspective. Remember to check out Sabo Media's website for new episodes, articles, comics, and columns. We have new content all the time. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe on your favorite corporate data mining platform of choice, and go ahead and make the switch to federated social media on the Collectiva Mastodon server today. 
at Aberdeen Local 1312 for updates on Sabo Media projects such as the Harbor Rat Report, the Communique, the Sabo Tours, our podcast Molotov Now, and many other upcoming projects. That's all for tonight. Please remember to spay and neuter your cats, and don't forget to cast your votes of those who deserve them. Solidarity, comrades. This is Molotov Now, signing off. (laughs) 